audio storytelling has become increasingly popular, with many taking to the microphone to share their voices, opinions, and stories through the spoken word. But it isn't just about personal expression. Podcasting connects people and can be an outlet for those underserved by traditional media. I'm Gabrielle Pisca, and you're listening to the Community Podcast Initiative, or the CPI. And the goal of the CPI is to produce and promote podcasting as a way to amplify underrepresented voices through audio storytelling. This initiative is based out of Mount Royal University and powered by Shaw. In this episode, we hear from Janella Massa, a Canadian television journalist and news anchor for CBC's Canada Tonight. Janella is a Canadian Screen Award winner and is best known as Canada's first hijab-wearing television news reporter. She joins me and my colleague Lexi Freehill to discuss inclusivity in the media sector. We also cover issues such as representation, allyship, and self-advocacy. This panel was a part of Mount Royal University's fourth annual International Women's Day event, where students and faculty spoke to a variety of female voices and leaders. So Janella, my first question for you, um, you're someone who's now had over a decade of experience in news production and on-air experience. But before that, you were a student at York University and Seneca College, first interning at a newsroom in Toronto. As a female student journalist myself, I've been told many times that the broadcast and radio industry is primarily male-dominated, specifically in the positions of hosts and anchors. So I'm curious to know if you had a similar experience in your time as a student, where you felt these kind of typical gender roles weigh heavily on you, especially at the start of your career. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that is uh, unique to being a woman in the field of broadcast media is there is so much focus on how you look. Uh, there is that kind of pressure uh, on women that, you know, our male colleagues don't uh, deal with. I remember reading this story about, um, you know, a, a, a pair of co-anchors this was in the U.S. who the female anchor used to get lots of mail and, and comments about her outfits and her a uh, colleague decided to do an experiment where he would wear the same suit every day for an entire year to see if anyone noticed and no one ever did. And it was kind of like this little social experiment about how focused and fixated we are on women's appearance um, in a way that men don't have to worry about. And, and you know, I have this added layer, of course, of being a, a hijab wearing woman, but, um, and, and there's lots of conversation around that. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that, but just in general, as women, there is so much focus on how we look, whether it's trying to, you know, cover us up or undress us. Uh, in, in my case, uh, you know, I think sometimes I, I hear from my colleagues, it's, it's either, as I say, you're, you're either too covered up or you're not covered up enough, or you're wearing too much makeup, or you're not wearing enough makeup, or uh, your hair is distracting or whatever, or your hair isn't showing or whatever it is. There seems to often be this conversation about women's um, appearance that is really frustrating. You know, I remember some one time someone tweeted me because my nail polish was chipped. Um, and I was like, really? Like, what does this have to do with my story or my ability to, to be a journalist? So um, that's something that is frustrating as a woman in this industry there. People feel entitled, especially when you're you know, in broadcast, in the broadcast world, people feel entitled to share their opinion about how you look. Um, and, and that can be a little bit frustrating. Uh, Janella, during your career as a journalist, you've been on both sides of the camera. My question is, um, can you tell us a little bit about your career today and how you got to where you are today? 
Yeah. So as you mentioned, I studied broadcast journalism at Seneca. I had studied communications at York University before that. Um, and I got my first internship at CTV Toronto, uh, which was, you know, a huge an exciting thing for me, but it was also very interesting, you know, to walk into a newsroom in the largest local local newsroom in the country, uh, in the most diverse city in the world, and not really see anyone who looked like me. Like I could count the number of people of color on my hand, and I thought this isn't really representative of the city that I know that I grew up in. Um, so I, I also realized that it was really important for me to be in that space, um, to offer a perspective that wasn't there and to be a resource, which I did end up being a resource um, for my colleagues and, and my bosses even, uh, who would come to me and ask me things or try to you know get me to help them connect with people in the community that they felt like they didn't have access to or you know were mistrusting of the media. And, and I realized why it was so important for, for me to continue on you know, and, 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 you know, fight to, to, <laughs> to be in this industry that is very competitive and very difficult to be in. So I, I had an internship there that helped, uh, that led to my first job as an editorial assistant. Um, it was an extremely steep learning curve. Um, you know, there were days where I like cried in my car <laughs> because no crying in the newsroom, but I did cry in my car um, just because it was really hard and the stakes were really high being, you know, one of the, the top newsrooms in the country and um, being at the assignment desk, you're kind of the the uh, the hub where information is coming in and out. You're signing cameras, you're taking calls, you're setting up stories, and um, you're a really important part of the newsroom. So there wasn't a lot of room for mistakes, but I was really lucky that I had, um, you know, a manager who saw something in me and was, you know, willing to help me learn and, and teach me. And, and um, I was there for two years. I went on to be a Chase producer at CTV News Channel, a 24-hour news channel. I stayed there for another two years, and then um, I quit without another job, <laughs> um, partially because, you know, my goal was I really wanted to be on air, and I felt like I kind of plateaued in the job that I had. I, I, I was doing the best that I could in this job, and there wasn't really a lot of room for me to grow, um, and I wanted to take on, take on some on-air opportunities, but a lot of times the opportunities that were available to someone like me with no on-air experience were part-time or freelance or a gig here and there, which were difficult for me to take on, especially if they were for a competitor, when I had a full-time job at one station. So I had to kind of take that risk and bet on myself a little bit. So I quit and I was freelancing for a little bit so that I could um, volunteer at, at Rogers TV, which is like a community cable station, like public access. And then I was freelancing on the side, uh, writing, producing, doing a little bit of media consulting, working on my demo. And I landed, I, I um, started freelance producing at News Talk 1010, or a, a talk radio station in Toronto. And while I was there, I kind of managed to finesse my way into doing overnight newscasts. So I was doing, um, hourly updates overnight. The schedule was 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. <laughs> and it was, um, you know, my first kind of opportunity to, to be on, on the radio and I was still working on my demo. And over that time, I had applied to a job at CTV in Kitchener. Um, and I applied to multiple jobs, but I had particularly this one job where I had applied and I had been rejected um, a couple of times. And each time I asked for feedback and I asked, you know, what can I, what's missing? What can I do? And um, they said, well, you just don't have enough videography experience. So I went to Rogers and volunteered some more and asked them to get, give me some videography experience. And I applied again and applied again. And finally, um, maybe they just got tired of saying no to me and <laughs> they decided to hire me. So that was my first on-air job in 2015. Uh, as a video journalist in Kitchener. 
and I was only there for a year and an opening came up at City News in Toronto. I applied and I got that job and I was at City News for five years uh, up until last year where I came to CBC um, as a national uh, host. Awesome. That sounds like a, sounds like it involved a bit of fighting, that's for sure. Um, so as an Afro-Latina Muslim woman, did you find you had to fight harder for opportunities to be behind the camera or in front of it? And what tips do you have around how to best self-advocate? Yeah, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of times I was in spaces where no one like me had ever been. And a lot of times people would look at me and, and wonder, oh, who's this girl? And, you know, I was young and... Um, uh, I remember being in the radio station and people being like, oh, are you the intern? And I was like, no, I'm the producer. Um, so often people underestimating or, or having an idea of, you know, who might hold those positions and being surprised when it was someone who looked like me. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the biggest hurdle was trying to get on air because, you know, I was the first woman in hijab to ever be on air as a television reporter. And uh, as I said, you know, I got, I applied for that job and I got rejected a couple of times. And I had to be the one to kind of address the elephant in the room and say, hey, listen, I know it might feel like it's a risk hiring someone like me. It's never been done. And, you know, I want to make sure that we can have an open conversation in case you have any apprehensions or concerns about what limitations, you know, might exist for me, which most of the time there pretty much there weren't any, but there were assumptions that there might be. Um, so I had to be the one to kind of open the door to that conversation because often hiring managers were uh, afraid, you know, they didn't want to come off as, uh, you know, racist or they were discriminating against me, but they did have questions that they were afraid to ask. So I had to say, hey, let's have a, let's have an open conversation. Let's have a dialogue. And I think that that helped um, me trying to, you know, get my foot in the door. I certainly never had anyone flat out say to my face, you will not be hired because you wear hijab. But I, I know that it was a, a question that was in some people's mind about whether, you know, um, Canada, have, how would viewers respond? Or, um, you know, there's always this question about bias and objectivity. Um, but I do know that it was a feeling that people had. I, I learned many years later after graduating that one of my professors had um, approached a friend, a colleague, a classmate of mine and said, you know, would you talk to Janella? You know, I think she's really good and she's really talented. She's gonna go far in this industry, but I worry that she'll have a hard time because of her hijab. And I wonder if she would ever consider removing it. But she didn't have that conversation with me. Um, she obviously knew that it wouldn't be a good look and, you know, maybe I would accuse her of like discrimination or something. And um, so she tried to like talk to my friend to like talk to me about it. And my friend was like, horrified and was like absolutely not um and didn't and didn't tell me about it until like years later when I was already working in news so certainly this is something that I think that was on people's minds I, you know I had a producer tell me um when I was work when I was also working as a producer uh, rather an on-air host tell me um you know I was talking to him about a friend of mine who had been hired and she was Muslim and he said oh does she wear hijab and I said no and he said yeah they'll never put a woman in hijab on tv it's too distracting and he said it so flippantly um, not knowing that that was something that I was, you know, striving uh, to do. And, you know, I didn't say anything in the moment, but it did feel like kind of a punch in the gut. And I just, you know, in, in my mind said, like, we'll see, hopefully I can prove him wrong. So yeah, it, it, it's almost harder sometimes to 
combat something that's not in your face. <laughs> um, because, uh, but at the same time, it, you know, it allowed me to kind of say, maybe it's just me, maybe it's just in my head and, you know, and, and to convince myself that the only person who was going to stop me was me. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it was good and bad that I didn't deal with blatant discrimination um, from hiring managers. Um, but I know that it was certainly a hurdle that, that I had to overcome. And as someone with so much experience who has seen firsthand the way gender inequities can play out in broadcast media, um, I wonder what would you suggest are some of the most important ways that gender equity can be advanced in newsrooms? Yeah, I mean, I talked a little bit about some of the things that women obviously have to deal with when it comes to um, uh, the way that they are judged and perceived uh, for how they dress and how they look. Um, one, you know, one of the other things that I had thought about too was was not so much what m women, um, uh, you know, you know, thinking about my job as a as a video journalist, right? I was someone who was out on my own shooting my own stories, and thinking about the ways in which I may be in situations that are not safe. For me, as a young woman who is five foot one, <laughs> like, um, you know, but not feeling like I could speak up and say, hey, I, I feel like this might be dangerous or I don't feel safe being out on my own because then you'll be perceived as weaker or not able to do the story or whatever it is. But recognizing that, you know, women uh, are in a different situation from men, uh, that they are more vulnerable and more susceptible to, um, you know, strangers and, and people, or uh, especially now in this era of people, there being a lot of sort of hostility towards, um, towards journalists. Uh, recognizing that some of us may be in positions that are where we're more vulnerable to that. And so how are we making sure that uh, women feel safe and not just in person, but even online? Women are often uh, the ones who are under attack in, ter in terms of gendered violence in the sense that, you know, um, the types of vile messages that we often receive are very specific to the fact that we are women, uh, right? Like rape and death threats and things like that. So, you know, recognizing that uh, we face different challenges, we face different, um, uh, you know, threats uh, than our male colleagues. And, and just by being women, people perceive us as being, you know, uh, vulnerable or, or being a target in a way that, you know, our male colleagues may not. So uh, kind of understanding that difference is, is important and giving us the tools uh, and the ability to, to deal with that. Now, kind of looking at the other side of it as well, what about in terms of how diverse stories are presented by major media outlets, kind of looking at that external factor? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something that I, um, it's a fight that I've been having since my career started, often feeling frustrated, like the bar would move when pit stories would be pitched around race. So so a couple of different reactions would happen. Sometimes it would be that there wasn't an interest or there wasn't an appetite for these kinds of stories or like it's too niche or specific to a type of group that no one would be interested in and it's not going to generate clicks. So there is that. Um, and as I said, I've worked mostly in and around Toronto. So recognizing that Toronto is a very diverse city. Um, and, and so that is a very a false notion that people would not be interested in these stories. Uh, the other piece was around stories around racism and discrimination. Um, we would get told things like, well, it's he said, she said, we can't prove it. Um, our police investigating. And so the bar, as I said, would always be set higher as to what uh, what makes a story legitimate or not when we would do other stories with way less information, re relying, 
you know, on, on people's personal uh, experiences and not questioning them as credible in the same way that we would when we did stories around race. So, you know, I think that's something that we're starting to really start to unpack, you know, especially in the wake of, of George Floyd, I think there is more of a, an appetite to tell these stories and hear them, um, not because they weren't happening before, but because people are now speaking up about them and people actually are able to present tangible evidence in a way that we haven't before. So um, I think it's, it's really important to continue to tell these stories um, because we have to be reflective of the communities that we're reporting on. Um, these are things that are happening in our communities. Yes, maybe to one population, but they are an important part of our society. So we should be telling their stories as well. So uh, many students, myself included, struggle as they enter the workplace to know how best to support and actively work to protect and advance the rights and visibility of marginalized groups. You have been a leader in the community on this front. So I'm curious, how do you define allyship? Yeah, it's so interesting. I actually said in an article recently that I kind of hated the word allyship or, or the, 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 the concept of it because it positions racism as my problem that you are going to help me with. When I'm the victim of the racism and folks who often, you know, uh, belong to the communities who are doing the racism uh, uh, are then asking, how can I help? So to me, you know, as I said, it, it frames it as my problem that I'm supposed to solve and you're going to help me with. And, and that I think is already the premise that we're starting from is problematic, right? So, so seeing it as, as an issue that is you know, especially you know, if we're talking about uh, uh, white people or people who belong to sort of a dominant uh, society or, or, or demographic, right? Seeing it as your problem, uh, seeing it as something that uh, you are complicit in by standing by, right? And there's often this notion of not saying, you know, it's not enough to be non-racist, you have to be anti actively anti-racist. And that to me is what that means, right? Recognizing um, that by not saying something, by not speaking up, or by standing standing by and standing silent, often that in and of itself is damaging. Um, so how do you use your position or your privilege um, to make space for people to amplify what they're saying, to um, echo their concerns, and uh, you know, open the door for them to have a, a seat at the table in the same way that you might. So, you know, a simple example of this is I often would be, you know, in those pitch meetings where I would maybe be pitching one of those stories that I'm talking about and, and a, a manager or whatever is saying, oh, you know, there's not much interest or whatever. And I would leave the meeting and then a colleague, a white colleague would come by and say, oh, you know, I think you were right. I think we should do that story. But they would say it to me privately instead of speaking up in the meeting and saying, hey, actually, I think this is an important story that we should do. So that was frustrating to me where I say, okay, well, use, use your position or use your privilege to um, amplify something that I said, rather than coming to me on the side and saying, oh, I support you quietly and privately, but not publicly or in, fr in front of a manager or in front of a room. So, you know, these are simple and small ways that we can um, you know, speak up for people and, and do the work ourselves rather than relying and asking other people uh, to solve the problem. It's like asking a woman who is being abused, what can we do to stop to make sure that you're not being abused by your husband, right? When the person that we should be engaging is the person who was doing the abusing. Um, and why is it still necessary to continue to call for diversity and equity, even when you yourself have begun to break through the glass ceiling? Yeah, I mean, I've been fighting for representation in newsrooms since, as I said, since the moment I walked into my first internship, because I recognize that it's important, not just in front of the camera, but behind it as well. Um, because, you know, this idea that 
journalism is objective and impartial is actually completely untrue. Every person who comes into a newsroom and who pitches a story and who writes a story has their own biases and, and you know, ideas and opinions of, of the world that, you know, were shaped by our experiences. That's just reality. We are human. So the more people we can bring into a newsroom who have different experiences, who have different ideas, who view the world in different ways, the more we can all be in the newsroom to challenge each other, to talk about what are the stories that are important to us and how do we frame them and whose voices do we include. When those are more representative of the society that we are serving, because I do see journalism as a public service, uh, as, a, as a public good, especially working for the public broadcaster, um, then that's how we can uh, start to uh, actually reflect a society uh, that, that we're working for, is ensuring the people who make the decisions about what stories are told and how they're told uh, actually belong to different communities. And that's not just racial diversity. That's also, you know, uh, looking at people from different genders, sexual orientation, different classes, different ages, right? What's a story that's interesting to someone in their 20s is going to be different than a story that's interesting to someone in their 50s. So that's why we need to make sure that our newsrooms um, are actually uh, made up of, of the, uh, the demographics that we're serving. Now, I know that um, in other interviews and conferences you've mentioned, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier today too, that as a student and during your career progression, you didn't see anyone who looked like you that you could go to for advice or even mentors who had the same experiences that you did. What advice would you give to students who may be feeling discouraged or nervous about joining the news industry due to this lack of inclusivity? I mean, I think it's changing. And I think that um, now people are, are easier to connect with, you know, even just uh, Twitter and Instagram and social media is very different uh, now than it was when I when I started my, the industry, uh, you know, 12 now years ago. And so it's easier for me now to connect with people and to reach out to them and to make networks and find, uh, you know, uh, people who can who, who I can um, go to and, and vent a little bit and get some advice. And so, um, you know, we're there, <laughs> we are there, we do exist and, and the internet makes the world a little bit smaller. So, you know, don't be afraid in that sense, but at the same time, that's exactly why you're needed, right? If, if you feel like people like you aren't represented, whether it's, you know, people with disabilities, uh, people with, you know, uh, uh, neurodivergent, uh, um, you know, uh, backgrounds and, uh, or people, uh, from, you know, I, I was having a conversation with someone who said, I don't see any, um, you know, Sikh broadcasters who wear turbans or, uh, you know, whatever it is. Uh, if you feel like you're not represented, that's exactly why you need to be there. Right. So, you know, don't be afraid. <laughs> it's, it's, it is a difficult and daunting task sometimes to be the only one in the room who looks like you and you're representing an entire community and feeling like, you're carrying that that burden on your back, but it's so important. And and for me, I don't want to be just the the first and the only and the last. I hope that I'm the first of many, and it can encourage others uh, uh, behind me. And in terms of providing additional advice, what guidance would you give to recent grads who are looking for ways to engage in meaningful allyship in their workplaces? Yeah, I mean, in terms of allyship, as I said, again, um, you know, often the best thing that you can do is think about how people who have had a completely different experience than you uh, might 
impact might experience a story, right? And you know, this is what we always strive to do when we talk about being like objective journalists is like looking at a story from both sides, but not just from both sides, but looking at different a story from different sides, from a different perspective than yours. Um, and, and making sure to include those voices in those stories, right? So thinking about, um, you know, how might someone who has a different perspective than me uh, view this story and let me hear what they have to say about this. Let me, you know, include that voice. And, and you know, I always, I always struggle with this as well is in terms of stories that are specific to a community and whether or not the person who belongs to that community should be the one telling that story. Because sometimes it can be more exhausting to feel like I have to do this and I have to do it right. Um, but as journalists, we should be able to tell stories from all sorts of different, um, all sorts of different topics, right? I, I use this example. I like to cover, I, I don't like to cover sports, <laughs> but sometimes it's my job to go to the, you know, season home opener and, and there are people who are really passionate about this. So how do I ensure that I do this story justice, right? Um, if it's not something that I personally care about. So what would I do? I would go and seek out sports fans um, who are really passionate about this topic and hear from them, right? So how do I apply that same lens to say a story about racial inequality or whatever when I'm not a person of color? Um, how do I how do I ensure that I do that story justice to the people who really care about this story when I personally am not impacted by it, right? So it should, as I kind of going back to the point about it, shouldn't just being oh this is a story about racism, so I'm going to assign it to the black reporter. Um, how do we ensure that everyone can do these stories and do them well? And I just have a quick follow up question. Uh, you mentioned that you kind of hate the word allyship. So <laughs> what word would you use? <laughs> I don't know that I have an alternative <laughs> for it. I don't know. I mean, I think that it is the word that we have. This you, we say uh, you want to be a good ally, so it's fine if you want to use it. But I think it's more about um, uh, reshaping our understanding of, of allyship and the premise around it, right? Um, because, as I said, it puts it positions uh, white people as the helpers of of dealing with racism, um, and I don't know. And I feel like you know they should be the the ones leading leading the charge. Yeah, that that makes sense, and uh, the way you the way you word it rings definitely true. Um, so, on behalf of myself, Gabrielle, and Mount Royal University's Faculty of Business and Communication Studies, I would like to thank you, Janella, for joining us in marking International Women's Day and celebrating women in the workplace. That was Janella Massa, news anchor for CBC's Canada Tonight. She was kind enough to speak with me, Gabrielle Piska, and my colleague, Lexi Freehill. Thanks for listening, and special thanks to Mount Royal University's Faculty of Business and Communication Studies for hosting the event. The Community Podcast Initiative at Mount Royal University focuses on audio storytelling as a medium to better include underrepresented voices. The CPI is powered by Shaw. You can learn more about the Community Podcast Initiative at thepodcaststudio.ca or find us on socials at communitypodyyc.